Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. Now, on one hand, the beloved John Pop is not able to join us today. John is, um, you know, he, he's taking care of some, some personal stuff, but he will be back with us soon. On the other hand, however, our new friend, Lauren Evans, is back in the saddle. Lauren, how are you today? I'm better now that I'm on the power hour. I mean, I can't both, like, literally, but figuratively to, figuratively as well. I can't live up to John Pop standards. So I'm just, I'm here, I'm doing my best, and I'm excited to be here. You can't live up to John Pop standards, but we're still glad to have you. <laughs> now, I'm so glad you decided to come back. I have to tell you, Lauren, I took it a little personal last week when you decided not to help us out. You know, I, w- I would have loved to be here. I just... You know how it goes with meetings, like every hour on the hour, and I just was double booked. But well, John and I had a whole conversation about it. We couldn't decide if you didn't like us, if you didn't have a good time on the podcast, if you were, if it was a complete rejection, or if you were being honest and ethical, and you just couldn't make it that day. We concluded that we really didn't know. Well, I don't have to like you guys to enjoy doing the podcast. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. But you're here this week and we're we're glad to have you so um this is the time of the podcast where we do a little bit of of housekeeping to remind people what our email address is it is um the power hour at heritage.org so send us an email tell us uh what you want to hear this year as the the as time goes on or or next week and we will if at all possible we'll get the guests that you want we'll get the we'll cover the topics you want that's the Power Hour at Heritage.org. And I guess since John's not here, I'll tell you where you can find us. You can find us on all your normal podcast places like Spotify or whatever. Make sure, or, or uh, we are also on the uh, the Heard It Heritage feed. That's what you want to search and make sure you um, subscribe so you don't have to look for us. We'll just pop up every week when, when we have a, a new podcast. Um, now, Lauren, I, I skipped to that further. I wanted to ask you, since we haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks, mm. what are you doing? Like, what's keeping you busy? I, you know, we, I like to keep people attuned to what's going on with everyone. So you know, how are you enjoying your, your January so far? Well, we had snow here in D.C., and snow in D.C. is always fun. Uh, Where are you from, by the way? I'm originally from Florida, so I am not typically a snow person. I like to just watch it from my window and not drive in it or go out in it. But we had the March for Life on Friday. So, of course, I braved the two or three inches of snow. (laughs) For me, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm driving through a blizzard. Uh, So that was really – and snow makes everything prettier as well. So we were out at the march and then – For like 10 minutes. Yeah, true. And then you're like, oh, no, now I'm just cold and wet. Uh, uh, The Heritage President, Kevin Roberts – had this barn burner of a speech at Davos last week. It was so good. And that uh, on our social media channels just continues to go viral. So that's been fun to watch the numbers go up. And then also this week uh, in my role as uh, 
digital director here at Heritage, we put together a education choice documentary, which does not sound interesting. And I can, but it's really good and it's really fascinating and it's really interesting how they break down these issues. Let's talk for a minute about the Davos thing. Yeah. I don't like authority uh, and I hate management. Even when I was in it, it was a self-loathing job. Um, so I'm always hesitant to say anything nice about people who have authority over me or who manage me or who, you know, my bosses, because um, it feels inauthentic. If I'm saying something nice about them, given my uh, the fiber of my being, I must be sucking up. <laughs> <laughs> but God, he was good. He was, he was so good. He was and, so good. And to my bosses, I'm just teasing, of course. <laughs> um, he was so good. Whenever he said to that guy, what should you do? The opposite of everything that Zerman <laughs> said. So that was so good. And then um, my favorite part. This was my favorite part. I know I asked you. Now I'm talking, but, you know, whatever. My favorite part was whenever uh, the, 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 the uh, interviewer said something about, aren't you afraid with Trump that, that – um, we're losing the fabric of our of, of the liberal democratic order. And when Roberts looked at him, it was like, every uh, this is a paraphrase, of course. But when he was like, everything you do erodes the liberal democratic <laughs> order. Like, how can you and Davos, who thinks about a bajillion ways to implement authoritarianism, <laughs> and you're telling me that, that this guy is doing that? It was so good. It was so good. And he, if you've ever met Kevin Roberts, he's such a, a southern, mild-mannered, friendly guy. Yeah. And so we, we did a lot of prep getting ready. And we know, I mean, Kevin can drop a bomb when he needs to drop a bomb. But we were like... Is he going to be this nice, you know, Louisiana guy, or was he going to blow things up? And he, we were watching with our mouths just wide open. Well, he carpet bombed them. Oh, it was so good. And Javier Malay made a speech, and that went viral the day before. And it's amazing the coverage afterwards was like, Javier Malay's speech was great, and we really support, you know, his bomb throwing at the WEF. But we have to admit Kevin's better was better, and that's just <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So anyway, all right. Enough sucking up. No, that wasn't sucking up. That was as authentic a praise as, 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 as I could give. And our audience knows Kevin because Kevin did the podcast a while ago. He was awesome on that, too, if I do say so. Um, anyway, on to the podcast here. Our, now I'm all, already off script, off timeline. Um, let me ask you something, Lauren. Whatever you want. What do you think of when I say the electricity grid? Like, do you think it's rickety, strong, resilient? What sort I, of words come to mind? I think pretty rickety. I think old telephone pole, and I think those, you know, black wires that are always sagging a little bit more than you're comfortable with, with maybe, you know, a pair of shoes tied up and thrown on there. <laughs> <laughs> you are from Florida, aren't you? <laughs> Guilty as <stretch. laughs> No, I. <laughs> I might be thinking more like traffic lights, but I don't know. I that would come. It's to all my the head. same. Yeah, it's all the grid, know, right? Maybe there's birds up there. <laughs> Birds and shoes. So Florida. Actually, Were you yeah. in any of those Florida videos that come on like Reddit and stuff? Well, I'm, I'm sure. There's, uh, I'm sure. All right. I, I'm contrarian on this. I know people are constantly talking about, like you just were, failing infrastructure and love talking about how our grid needs investment. Now, I'm not saying that investment's not needed, but I'm a simple guy. I just call it like I see it. Here's how I see it. When I plug something in, it works. I've been on this planet for 50 years, and that has always been the case. And in the few instances 
where it wasn't the case, the light, lights almost always just come back on in a few hours. And in the very few times that it was more than that, you know, a couple of days, I mean, those are just, you could count on on one hand that at least I've experienced. So I don't buy into this stuff that the grid is in shambles. The fact of the matter is, the way I look at it, is that energy producers produce electricity to sell to customers. So they have every incentive in the world to make sure that the energy that gets produced gets distributed. I would say that if we would let it, the market has worked and does work. So the question is, why is there, why is there this popular narrative that at least in public policy circles, that our grid is failing? Could it be that politicians, bureaucrats, and special interests gain some benefit? Mm. Of course they do. <laughs> dun, they, dun, dun. they have agendas. And unfortunately, for each American family and business, those agendas are beginning to actually degrade the electricity grid. And while I've always enjoyed the benefits of a reliable electricity grid, I'm afraid that it won't be long until that's no longer the case. We already see this happening with greater frequency across the country. We hear about brownouts, rolling blackouts, fuel shortages. How is this, Lauren, even possible in 2024? We have access to more fuel than ever with fracking and coal and nuclear, not to mention all the hydro. And then there's like other stuff, renewables. Maybe you like that. Maybe you don't. I don't know. We have access to all of these things. What in the world is going on? I know every answer is always, it's the government's fault. It is. It is. But this podcast, while we always start with it being the government's fault, we try to go at least a little bit deeper. Now, you know it would be nice if we had someone that could come on here and talk to us about what's actually going on with the electricity (laughs) grid. Now, guess what? What? We just happen to have with us here today just such a person. Wow. Yeah. This gentleman has been researching and writing about these issues for years. Now, Lauren, you might know him from such classics as solar subsidies will incentivize irrational energy decisions in Mississippi and disappearing wind turbines almost leave Alberta, Canada in the dark. It's my beach reading. Perhaps my favorite and probably yours is this old classic published just earlier this year. Hawaii Five. Uh-oh. <laughs> Blackouts in Hawaii. He's a policy fellow at the Center for the American Experiment. He served as a research fellow at the Heartland Institute, and he cut his teeth as an aide in the Wisconsin State Senate. I pres- present to our power hour audience, Isaac Orr. Isaac, welcome to the Power Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. I just stumbled into this, uh, this meeting room, so I'm happy that I'm useful. we're so glad you could be here i'm I'm glad that uh i I hope that you didn't find our opening too unbearable (laughs) and insufferable oh i loved the florida woman stuff that was (laughs) (laughs) all right right, so now you know everything you know need to know about lauren i want to know about you tell us a bit about yourself where are you from how'd you get into energy policy that kind of stuff let's start with where are you from we know that lauren's from florida I'm, by the way, from Mount Savage, Maryland. Shout out, Mount Savage. Where are you from? I am from the sprawling metropolis of Wapaka, Wisconsin. It is a town of 6,000 people. I grew up on a dairy farm there, so I am the stereotypical Wisconsinite. 
And uh, the reason I'm into energy policy is as a kid, you know, I'd, I'd get done doing chores. I'd be cleaning peg or pig pens or bailing hay. And in the summertime, the cows would be so thirsty, they would drink down the water pressure in our well to where I couldn't go take a shower. We basically had no water inside of the house. So when I was in my environmental geology class in college and we're talking about groundwater flow, well pressure, that sort of stuff, I was like, oh, this is, this is very interesting stuff. So I ended up doing uh, political science and geology at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire because I knew that there was a very political element to the you know geologic decisions that we're making, whether that's siting a pipeline, siting a mine, that sort of thing. And uh, then I started working as a, an aide in the Wisconsin State Senate. I was there when uh, we were doing the budget repair bill with Governor Walker in 2011, and all the hippies came to the Capitol and refused to leave. So uh, they were sleeping on pool toys, and uh, it smelled like uh, like a, a hippie fest. It was very patchouli and bo. Uh, so uh, well, Isaac, that that's why on this program, just so you know, I mean, you haven't been on here here before, so you wouldn't know this. But anytime we reference hippies, we always precede that word with filthy. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I thought you were going to say you have to take a shot. And uh, I was like, okay, let's party. You really are from Wisconsin. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it's brandy, not whiskey in the old fashioned. That's, that's just the way we roll up here. Uh, so, yeah, then I, uh, then I basically um, had the opportunity to do some freelance writing for the Heartland Institute, and they created a position for me uh, because I had done such an admirable job, they said, on the uh, hydraulic fracturing. Uh, issue. So I did that for several years, and now I'm doing electricity policy at Center of the American Experiment. My coworker Mitch Rowling and I developed a model that allows us to calculate the cost and reliability impacts of different energy policies. So that can be a state 100% carbon-free electricity mandate. That can be an EPA regulation. Uh, we're doing a lot of work with the North Dakota Transmission Authority, just kind of exposing how uh, detrimental these EPA regs are going to be to grid reliability moving forward here. Now, I want to get into that. In fact, I want to talk a lot about that. But uh, first, can you tell us just a little bit about the Center for the American Experiment? Uh, tell us about the organization. Yeah, uh, American Experiment is has been around since 1990, I believe. Like, I was you know, too young to care <laughs> when it got founded. Uh, so, uh, so we do a lot of work on a whole host of different issues, right? So I'm uh, the, for all intents and purposes, director of energy policy here. Uh, but we have two economists on staff. We look at you know, migration patterns, wealth migration, uh, things like rent control. Uh, and then we have education policy fellow, Catherine Wigfall. She does a great job on you know, school choice, union stuff too. Uh, and we also have a need for a public safety fellow, uh, basically because uh, there's a contingency of people in Minneapolis that think police are the problem. So we actually had to hire somebody to be like, well, you know, police aren't actually the problem. <laughs> uh, and we also have healthcare. It's uh, the hippies. It's the dirty hippies. You forgot. I guess right. filthy. The, the, the filthy hippies. Filthy. Sorry. The, the, the drinking game should be if you forget to say filthy before right. you say hippie, then right. you have to take a shot. All right. I can't get the image of the hippies on the pool toys out of my mind, too. <laughs> Well, that that might be the future of America if we don't get energy policy right. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I needed something. Are you going right. to vamp some more? Like, I couldn't tell. No. Um, <laughs> all right. Getting back to the issue at hand. Um, 
So do you focus, does the center focus on state policy or do you get into federal policy? Like sort of what, what does that mix look like? Yeah, we do a healthy mix of both, Jack. Okay. So uh, we've modeled the implications of various energy policies in 11 states now. Uh, but we also look at it from a regional standpoint as well. So we'll look at uh, the impact of, let's say, the ozone transport rule. It's an EPA regulation on Southwest Power Pool, uh, which is a you know, consortium of states in the western part of the, the country. It goes from, like, North Dakota down to New Mexico. Uh, or we'll look at the impact of the EPA's carbon rules in MISO, Mid-Continent Independent Systems Operator. That's 15-state regional grid stretching from uh, Minnesota to Mississippi. So uh, we'll do those kind of regional analyses, too, mm-hmm. and then we submit comments to EPA. And, you know, if you're going to do something that's regional like that, it's, in effect, federal. Like, once you yeah. go interstate, mm-hmm. it's it's a federal issue. So, uh, you know, we honed our chops at the state level uh, doing the, these modeling projects. But, you know, eventually word of our prowess spread to other sectors of the or other parts of the country. So, you know, we we probably do 50 50 nowadays. Mm-hmm. So um, let's let's start talking about the issue. Um, let's or an, an issue. I want to talk about the electricity grid. It's a big issue. It, it, it is one of the, I would argue, primary pillars around which policy discussions revolve right now. And uh, for good reason. Kind of like what what we what, what I talked about in the the beginning of, of the podcast, which is um, I would argue that the electricity grid, if left alone from policymakers, is relatively stable, and most of the instability that we have seen recently, and even really back to when California had the post Enron problems, they, they the the problems were not because markets weren't working; it was because policy was undermining secure the the reliability of the grid. I'm curious from your perspective, what what sort of shape is the grid in and what what are the main threats to it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure I, I I'm in this weird situation where I just kind of acknowledge that there is no free market for electricity. There never has been a free market for electricity and there may never be a free market for electricity, right? So I, I agree with that. Yeah, the attempts to deregulate it uh, have ultimately kind of just resulted in different kinds of regulation, and maybe it's more onerous than the vertically integrated monopolies that we had before. Uh, I think Meredith Angwin does a really good job in her book, Shorting the Grid, of talking about how you've essentially taken the accountability of the grid away from state utility regulators, and now nobody really knows who's in charge. So the... uh, the regional transmission organization uh, operators, so that's like your PJM, your uh, ISO New England, MISO, they all think that, oh, well, you know, actually it's the state's responsibility to um, make sure that you have enough power plants on your system in order to keep the lights on. But then you have all these states that are doing crazy stuff like 100% carbon-free mandates. And in Minnesota, they didn't even legalize the construction of new nuclear power plants. They kept the moratorium uh, in place. So we have uh, a lot of folks on the left who are really dedicated to doing something that might not be the smartest thing to do in the first place, but they insist on doing it in the dumbest possible way. So I think that we have a, a real challenge happening uh, in the near future, right? You have all these mandates for 
shutting down the thermal plants, that's the coal, nuclear, and natural gas that keep the lights on when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And you know, that's what we saw in Hawaii recently. It's what we saw in Alberta recently. And uh, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation releases a report every year uh, or every other year. I forget how frequently they release it, but it's called their Long-Term Reliability Assessment. And the area of the country that is the most at risk of uh, rolling blackouts in the future is uh, the MISO region in the middle of the country because we're going to have to be retiring a lot of coal plants in the near future to meet some of these like utility uh, carbon-free goals, right? I think that too many conservatives think that uh, utility companies are private companies and it's their right to do whatever they want with their, their business because they're not really private companies. They're government-regulated monopolies. So it's our job to kind of intervene in what they want to do. Um, so, you know, there's just a whole mess of complicated factors that are, and then you add in the EPA regulations. Uh, we're going to be retiring a whole lot of coal plants and not replacing them with anything reliable, and that's not a good recipe for the future. Yeah. When, just to go back real quick, whenever I said that markets were working, that was an inarticulate way to say it. I, I acknowledge that um, because, as you pointed out, electricity has never been free market. Um, well, I don't want to say never, but not in any recent time. And I guess what I was trying to say was that the, the that, that electricity markets as they were, not free – but as they were with less with less agenda driven government interventions for better or for, or for I would say for better did lead to a generally reliable electricity grid that that would be my point and that um over the last decade more than that but really over the last decade you've seen more interventions trying to um take away from those who produce and distribute energy, take decision-making away from them, and it being concentrated in political, uh, with, uh, in, in political circles. I think, I think that would be my argument, um, just to clarify what, what I was saying. But I, uh, every, everything that you just said is absolutely true, that, and I agree with, with all of that. So, um, so that being said, uh, is it too late to reverse things and, and, and sort of what should we do? Has, have there, are we too far down the road with the green agenda to actually restore reliability in the grid? I think we're getting close, Jack, and that's, that's what's scary. So I think what ultimately what we would need to do to get back towards having more reliability is uh, not just pump the brakes on coal retirements, but slam on the brakes, right? So uh, if a company wants to retire a coal asset, it should be really difficult for them to do that, right? And I don't want to pick winners and losers in the marketplace of electricity generation any more than you do, but uh, the government has been selectively picking losers for the last, you know, since 1992, right? Chuck Grassley in the Wind production tax credit. I don't. I don't actually know if Senator Grassley was in office then, so I should be careful about that. But um, you know, nothing's as permanent as a temporary government program. And uh, so, I, I do think that in order to uh, get back towards this uh, reliability paradigm that we need, uh, you you need to stop shutting down the stuff that works and stop building the stuff that doesn't work. Like yeah. this isn't rocket science, right? But it's really difficult. 
because like let's let's be honest about it even during the trump administration when we had a senate and a house that were conservative the production tax credits for wind still got extended the investment tax credit for solar still got extended right so uh i think that there's we've conservatives have been sleepwalking as to what the impact of these uh these subsidies would ultimately have in distorting wholesale electricity markets you know uh look at texas right like one minute the the tech price of electricity will be like nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour and the next day it'll be negative 23 because you know that's that's what the the wind and solar do so uh ultimately yeah it's gonna it's gonna boil down to building stuff that works and maybe that's new nuclear power plants in the future i think that that if uh, decarbonizing the electric grid is your primary objective and you're not fully throated behind nuclear power, then you're not being serious. Let's talk coal for a moment. Um, you talked about not shutting down existing coal plants. We see in places like Arkansas where that's happening. Um, Utah, I think it's happening. Um, all over the country it's happening. And it's happening for different reasons. Some of the utilities just are like, yeah, we're going to do this to meet the the political objectives. And um, other places you have lawsuits being brought that, you know, these technical technicalities are being taken to court that keep the coal plants from being upgraded. What do you think needs to be done at the state level to, to prevent that? You know, I know that in some states legislation has been introduced that you can't shut down a coal plant until an equal amount of energy is brought online. Um, do you see any anything that local politicians or state politicians can do that help protect these assets? Yeah, and it, it really stems back to the way that monopoly utilities make money, right? Most people think of their power provider as a private business just like anybody else. Uh, they want to have low-cost, reliable service. That's their number one thing. And they you know think about uh, environmental improvement last. And like that's... The problem with this kind of framework that we all have as conservatives, especially who want to basically let businesses do as they want, is that monopoly utilities don't make money that way. You take the normal business model for every other business and you flip it on its head, and that's how monopolies work. So a monopoly utility does not make money, uh, well, because they have the exclusive right to sell electricity in their service territory, right? It would be uh, unfair to let them just charge whatever they want because there's no competition. So in vertically integrated states, which are a lot of the country, especially in the middle of the country, uh, the price of electricity is actually set by the government at a public service commission, public utilities commission, whatever you want to call it. It's a regulatory board that oversees the utilities. And the price of electricity comes from a formula called the cost of service formula. So stay with me. I know I said formula and people's eyes glaze over it, <laughs> but it's, it's really easy, right? It's a really easy formula. It says the utility company is allowed to charge enough for its electricity to cover the cost of providing service to everyone within that service territory, plus a 10% profit whenever they build something new. So long as that uh, new asset is approved by the utility board, right? So this gives a utility company a powerful incentive to build as much new stuff as possible because they're basically guaranteed a 10% return on whatever they spend, a return on equity, uh, when they build new things that get approved by the PUC. So that could be a wind turbine, a coal plant, or it could be new cor- corporate offices, right? Like if it's approved, it gets put in something called the rate base. 
And on the other side of that equation is something called depreciation. So if you have an existing asset, every year it depreciates a little bit more and the utility earns a little less profit on it. So many utilities like Excel Energy in Minnesota have uh, coal plants that are completely depreciated, right? So they don't earn the utility company any more money, but they are the lowest cost, most reliable assets for generating electricity for Excel's customers. But Excel, they want to shut down those you know, reliable, depreciated assets and build a whole bunch of new stuff because that's how they make money for their shareholders. It's a very perverse incentive. So, um, and the fact that wind and solar don't work very well is like a bonus. It's a cheat code for the rate of return formula, right? Because you need to build uh, a wind turbine, a solar panel, and a natural gas plant to replace the power uh, and the capacity of that coal plant in order to make sure that the lights stay on. So one of the ideas that I have, and I've been working with some, some other groups, is called the Only Pay for What You Get Act. And uh, right now, so if a utility company in Minnesota or any other regulated state uh, builds a wind turbine, they're able to recover the full cost of that wind turbine plus a 10% profit on top of it. If my legislation was you know, introduced and enacted somewhere, uh, they would only get to recoup the reliable portion of that wind turbine. So uh, when the, the grid operator is looking at the different resources they have available to meet electricity demand, uh, they, they basically plan for wind to not be there. Uh, they give it an 18% uh, accreditation or capacity value, which means they think 18% of the capacity on the grid will be available when that electricity is needed most. So, you know, I think that if the grid operator only thinks that asset is 18% reliable, then ratepayers should only pay 18% towards that uh, that asset and the company's shareholders can pay for the rest of it. So I want to start to try to introduce market signals into uh, this kind of non-free market, can't be a free market situation. And I think that will hopefully, uh, in, in addition to the, the legislation that you referenced earlier, saying you need to have enough reliable capacity uh, to replace the thermal generation that you're retiring, is a good first step. It's not going to fix everything, but you know, we've got some ideas, it's just we need to get Republicans first and foremost, conservatives, to understand that monopoly utilities are not your friend and they're going to try and pad their rate base as much as possible with wind, solar, battery storage. Here's why you're wrong. No. Um, no. <laughs> Bring I, I it. Agree. Bring it. Let's go. The, the problem with this is, is, yeah, I agree with everything you just said is great. And I hate to be defeatist, but... But these monopoly utilities are not their friends. They're also who fund them. There's so much money going on and being exchanged. And that that's why I hate to acknowledge. No, I'm not going to acknowledge that we can't achieve freer markets in electricity, even though I'm probably wrong. Um, because there, I don't know how we break out of this cycle unless we continue to fight that fight. Because I have zero faith in the politicians, the public utility commissions, or the utilities, actually any 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 one of that evil trio um, actually working in a way that benefits consumers. And so no matter what we do um, that to try to tame that beast, it's untamable because of all the money that's involved and all the power they have. Am I wrong? Tell me I, I mean, am. 
you're not wrong about how much money they have and how much influence they have, right? I mean, they, they grease the skids on a lot of stuff. There was a, a bill in Wisconsin recently talking about uh, transmission reform, right? And for some reason, it got a lot of play among conservative media pundits on Twitter. I, I really didn't understand why so many people were, were interested in it. But, you know, ultimately, uh, the Republicans were interested in this, uh, introducing this bill that would allow incumbent utilities to have the right of first refusal for new transmission projects. And that whole thing, the, the whole discussion about transmission misses the point that we don't need new transmission if you're not doing dumb stuff like shutting down existing right. coal and nuclear plants and building a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't work. So, right. I mean, ultimately, I think that it's going to be an, it's going to be an uphill battle. But we need to get Republicans to understand how the grid works and why what's currently happening with these utility companies that do shower them with cash is soaking their constituents. And part of that's going to stem to or boil down to educating their constituents about how, you know, utilities are green plating the grid and picking their pocket in the process. Let's talk nuclear for a little bit. Nuclear is my public policy passion, I guess, um, outside of my work on just trying to promote free markets and energy policy. Um, you were talking about if we care about reducing carbon, nuclear has to be part of the problem. I agree with that. I agree with that sentence. Here's where I disagree with it, though. Here's, here's, I, I disagree with presenting nuclear in that way. I feel like hooking nuclear's hitch too close to the carbon wagon will not lead to a long-term sustainable nuclear industry, if that is what we're interested in. Because I personally believe that the whole carbon narrative has moved so far beyond the science and into politics that it's not sustainable over time for all the reasons that we've just been talking. It leads us to a down a path of destitute, destitution. And so while I see the near-term benefit of talking about nuclear in terms of carbon dioxide, I think that the long-term costs of that are substantial. And instead, and it prevents us from having a serious discussion about the radical sorts of reforms that would be necessary for nuclear to truly have a chance at long-term success. Um, what are your thoughts on nuclear? And I, that, that, that's sort of just the opening gambit of a shorter of a, of a discussion on nuclear I'd like to have with you. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Um, I think that one reason why conservatives roll their eyes at nuclear is because the nuclear industry for a really long time kind of had a, a limp wrist, you should like us because we're good at CO2 reduction. And like, that's not cool. <laughs> like, right. you know, like you want, uh, if a nuclear plant had like a big American flag on it and like you had a, had it like spray painted on the side of a pickup truck, now you've got my interest, right? right. And nuclear is pretty awesome technology. I think that we are learning the hard way that shutting down coal plants and replacing it with natural gas is not the same in terms of reliability. Nuclear stores three months or no, sorry, eighteen months of fuel on site, and uh, the the fuel cost is lower than coal even. So like, there's a lot of awesome advantages to it. We don't talk about those because the the conversation on energy has become so myopically focused. But let's talk more about your radical reimagination of the regulations because I'm I'm interested to hear what you have to say on that. Oh, I I think that um, the current regulatory structure is completely antiquated. Um, it relies on a, a a an old understanding of radiation risk. Consolidates too much power with the regulators for technology. 
um, as if the tech as if the technology is new and scary and it's neither new nor scary. I think that too much of the oversight happens from Washington when it should be at the states, especially for large light water reactors. Um, so so here's my radical my most regulation for large light water reactors should happen at the state level and it should be minimal there because our nuclear industry knows how to build large light water reactors. They've been doing it for over 50 years. They've been doing it safely and it's not an issue. It's no different than building a any other sort of industrial facility. So we need to quit acting like it's 19, you know, 52 and we're just figuring out how, you know, how to do this. Um, for, for new reactors, I think that we need to establish a completely different regulatory pathway for them. Um, one that does two things, and th- th- a lot of people would call this radical, I think it's just common sense, is um, – Instead, give people who want to build these new types of reactors the option to forego most NRC oversight, but to have to get their own liability insurance so that they're not covered under Price-Anderson protection. And I think insurance markets will do a far better job of ensuring safety than what any government bureaucrat ever could do. And it would truly... Um, separate the wheat from the chaff of the for a for the new reactor technologies, rather than what we hear now that every SMR is the best thing since sliced bread. Let them go out and compete in the marketplace and give them the regulatory where uh, the regulatory space to go be innovative. And then the last piece of my radical agenda is um, we need to get the federal government out of nuclear waste management. We made a fatal error in the nuclear industry and in nuclear policy in 1982 when we passed the the Nuclear Waste Policy Act that took nuclear waste management away from the private sector and gave it to the federal government. Since then, we've made no progress on nuclear waste management. But more important than actually figuring out what to do with nuclear waste, you disconnected the the front end of the fuel cycle from the back end of the fuel cycle from a business standpoint. For nuclear ever to be successful, we need those things to be connected so that as the industry is thinking about what technologies we're going to move toward, that they're thinking about waste management in that process. Um, It will also drive new technology because new reactor types will will either produce easier to manage uh, fuel, or they will be reactors that can actually help in the fuel man- uh, the spent fuel management process. All of that is lost. So, so that, from a policy standpoint, is what I think needs to happen. Then from a, from a larger energy policy standpoint, we need to quit making pretend like we're in an energy-scarce situation. We are energy abundant, and for nuclear to be successful, it's not about the federal government like seeding all of these flowers and seeing which ones, gr- what, which ones grow. It's about the private sector looking at nuclear technology and seeing what, ni- what niche areas that nuclear can really, ha- that nuclear has the advantage, put resources and capital towards those, and build the technology out from a, a strong economic standpoint, rather than trying to displace something that doesn't need displaced. Anyway, that's my that's my two cents on it. Yeah, I've heard stuff along the lines of uh, the oil industry is interested in having small nuclear power generators in order to run their frack crews because it would be yeah. cheaper than diesel. Like yeah. those are the kinds of like bottom up uh, applications for nuclear that I think you know could in aggregate make a big big difference at some point in the future. Yeah, I think that all I think you know energy revolutions don't happen out out of bureaucracies they happen in the marketplace any any economic or technological revolution that's how it happens and for us for these for for anyone to be so, you know to have the hubris to think that they can generate a, a energy revolution is just it, it is just wrong 
Um, and it's detrimental. And this comes back to bringing it back to use and Sarah guess something I wanted to talk about is the detrimental impact of subsidies and mandates on energy on energy sources. I know that you've written a lot about that, about subsidies and what they do to to energy. And I we often look at the harm of subsidies to the broader market because it causes us to have to pay more for, uh, you know, it brings more unreliable energy sources into the marketplace and, and that. But there's we also don't want to subsidize things that we want because of the same reasons. I think nuclear falls into that category. If you want nuclear to be successful, stop subsidizing this stuff and let capital flow towards the best ideas. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your view on subsidies and the, the negative impacts they have. Yeah, I think that... I don't know. Like, uh, I think the wind and solar production tax credit and investment tax credit are pretty bad. Um, I, I'd like to hear more about what you think about nuclear subsidies. My thought is, if you're going to subsidize something, at least subsidize something that you can turn on, right? That is dispatchable. Um, because, like, when you when you look at ERCOT, uh, the wind and solar, uh, I guess, the industries of Texas put together a joint report talking about how. The solar subsidies were pushing down the clearing price for the wholesale markets and essentially pushing reliable generators offline, whether that's coal, nuclear, or natural gas. And that's why you have Texas holding their breath every time that gets a little cold or a little bit too warm down there. And you know we're, we see the same thing in uh, wholesale markets in the, the western part of the country. So if you want to talk about Southwest Power Pool or MISO. Uh, you have all of these wind turbines that are able to bid in negative prices into these wholesale markets. And if the clearing price goes negative, you're forcing coal and nuclear plants to essentially pay to put their electricity on the grid because it would cost more to ramp down, right? So you are essentially depriving the actual reliable generators of revenue uh, so you can subsidize and like give revenue to the unreliable stuff. They're essentially dumping steel <laughs> into a market, right? Like, uh, that's kind of how I, I like to describe it. So I think those are those are very harmful to, to grid reliability overall, because that's how the utility companies say, oh, well, you know, our coal plants are losing money in the wholesale market. We better get rid of it. So, like, I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see if there was an appetite among red states to uh, tax wind and solar, the value of the production tax credit to kind of counteract the fact that mm -hmm. you have all of these warped incentives at the federal level. I think that would be because let's face it, like if you can't repeal the the wind production tax credit or the investment tax credit uh, when you have an, a you know Republican trifecta in Washington, when are you ever going to get it done? So um, I think that that would be that'd be an interesting play. You know, you don't like to just enact policies to counteract other policies, but at some point, you can't just stand back there and keep getting punched without uh, punching back. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, what you just described is where the harm of uh, whenever you start trying to manipulate markets with subsidies, and it always ends badly. And we're seeing across the world it ends in protests, either because you um, because you have some sort of long term impact on on markets. The other part of subsidies is on the technology side, and this is what you mentioned a little bit with nuclear. Um, I would just I've already talked enough, um, but I would just say real quickly that whether it's nuclear or you know things like carbon capture and sequestration or or wind and solar, frankly, when you when you start subsidizing things. You end up distorting 
where the capital ultimately flows. And rather than it flowing towards those ideas that are most promising, um, you end up depriving those things from adequate resources to fully to be fully developed. And rather, you continue to f- pour money into the bad ideas. And that's why with solar and wind, you know, despite all the subsidies, you're, they still have the exact same problems they always have. And so with, with, with nuclear, I think that it's, there's also some of that. It, with nuclear, I, I'm more concerned because there's so much – I'm not more concerned than with wind and solar because they, the wind and solar subsidies, as you described, have their own negative impacts. With nuclear, I'm so concerned because of all the promise it has. And by subsidizing things, politicians are able to express their support for that technology type. A lot of politicians like to say, I'm pro-nuclear. I support these programs, most of which are subsidies, rather than getting to the really difficult and politically risky work of implementing the sort of reforms that would allow nuclear to be successful on its own or not. You know, that's where, even though I, I would describe myself as pro-nuclear, I'm not religious about that or any, any energy source. I want Americans to have access to the to affordable, clean, reliable energy. And I think that it should be the job of politicians to ensure that markets allow that to happen, not for them to decide what that looks like. And if nuclear is part of that, great. If it's not, well, that's fine, too. Yep. I think that would makes be, a lot of sense. Would be my position. Now, um, we're, we're, we're coming up to an, the end already. And I, I've talked too much. Lauren hasn't said anything. So, Lauren, make sure if you have any questions, you get them in there. I'm, I have one more question, though, um, first. Or do you have any questions? I do have a question. Yeah, please. So you guys did such a great job of breaking this down to where even I could understand. So that's I was just sitting here enthralled. But when I think about everything in my life that I need day to day, electricity is probably, you know, it's like the Lord and then electricity, right? And how it just... It, it should scare the everyday American, right? We're addicted to our phones. We're addicted to the internet. That how how do people care more about the you know being this green climate person than the comforts that they have with the electric grid? Well, it's because people think milk comes from the store and that electricity comes from the outlet. I think it's <laughs> you know it's the you know Jack was talking about fifty years. I've been able to just flip the switch and it's always been there. So. Um, you know, people probably never understood how the electric grid works because it's an intricate machine, but mm-hmm. they at least appreciated the fact that they liked the fact that the lights turned on because that wasn't something that they always had access to. Uh, I have a theory. <laughs> it's, it's a little uncouth, but I think that like once you're three generations removed from somebody in your household using an outhouse, like you're kind of spoiled and you have lost kind of the the appreciation for modernity that uh, maybe somebody who's a little bit closer to the 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 John outside is uh, is used to. So that I'm good. My kids will be good because my dad they didn't have they didn't have a bathroom until like 1958 or something like that. Oh, wow. So I think uh, yeah, you, you just you have a different appreciation for things if you're closer to it. And the further removed you are from where it gets generated or where it gets grown, then you know, you start to take it for granted in a way that, you know, is ultimately going – it wouldn't be so bad if those folks didn't want to tell everyone else how to live their lives, but here we are. Now, there, there are two last things I want to ask you about, and I'm sorry that I took up so much time 
getting to this point. <laughs> you and, and you even opened the door to this, and I want to hear more about it. You've you've done a lot of EPA modeling. Can you tell us a little bit about what 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 you all are doing, what you're finding, and what it means to policymakers, and what it should mean to the 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 just the folks out there listening to this? Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at the impact of the EPA's carbon rule in MISO, and we basically found that uh, well, the most alarming thing is EPA does not know how the electric grid works based on the assumptions that they're making in their modeling. And, uh, you know, whenever EPA puts out a regulation, they have to put out a long document called a regulatory impact analysis that basically explains how they think that this regulation is going to work. And when Mitch and I, my colleague, uh, went through their RIA of the carbon rules to see how much power plant capacity they thought would be, you know, on the MISO system moving forward, uh, we realized that there was not going to be enough dispatchable capacity to meet uh, the projected electricity demand in their document. So what we do in those circumstances is we go to the EIA website, we find the hourly wind and solar production and the hourly uh, electricity demand, and we basically say, okay, if we spin this forward to the grid that EPA thinks will be existent, in existence in the future, and we take the hourly wind and solar capacity factor, which is basically on a scale of one to 100, how productive is the, uh, the wind or solar being in this hour, uh, we found that there would be massive blackouts in the MISO region by 2040 uh, as a result of the, the changes that EPA thinks will come from the uh, Inflation Production Act and the, the regulations that they're implementing. So, you know, EPA is essentially mandating blackouts moving forward and uh, we were the only organization in the country that I'm aware of that did this kind of analysis. So it was really cool. Uh, we had some folks in Congress that wrote a letter to EPA. Uh, it was mostly uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, Congressman Tom Tiffany led the charge on that. That was awesome. So uh, yeah, that's where we're at. We're basically just uh, sounding the alarm before the lights go out. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is it's often the case whenever politicians and bureaucrats talk about and special interests, how awesome their electricity or power source choice is, they talk about it in economic terms and they talk about the levelized cost of those electricity sources over time. And through their, their, their formulas, their, I would argue, often manipulations – Everyone's electricity joins the source is always the one that ends up being least expensive and most competitive over time. <laughs> Despite that, they still want the subsidies and mandates for it. So I know you've done work on these levelized costs. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you've done there? Yeah, absolutely. So the problem with levelized cost of energy analyses is, you know, if you look at what EIA says about them, Energy Information Administration, they say you cannot compare the cost of a thermal resource, a dispatchable resource, to a non-dispatchable resource. Step one, if you're a wind and solar advocate, is you throw away that <laughs> that warning and you say, look at how much this costs, right? So yeah. just to kind of break it down for the listener, the levelized cost of energy is essentially the cost of producing electricity from a given resource over the amount of megawatt hours you think it's gonna produce. So the easier way to think about this it is the cost of driving your car on a per mile basis after you take into consideration your down payment on the car, whatever car payment you might have, uh, insurance and repairs, right? So we're doing this for power plants. 
over the lifetime of the asset of the asset yes so uh the problem with this for wind and solar is like we're looking at these these resources in a vacuum so we're looking at how much it costs to generate electricity electricity from these assets and not how much does it cost to serve the demand using these assets right so the whole levelized cost of energy metric made more sense when all the assets had roughly the same reliability value. But as you start to move toward a grid with fewer dispatchable assets, it doesn't make sense. You need to calculate the cost of uh, serving each megawatt hour using certain uh, resources. And when you do that, you realize like, okay, well, sometimes the wind is blowing at you know 90% of its potential output. But sometimes it's one and a half percent of its potential output for 42 hours straight, right? So mm-hmm. it's effectively zero. How much overbuilding of the grid do you need to have? How much battery storage do you need to have in order to serve that electricity demand for every hour of every year? And when you do that in Minnesota, we found it was going to be something along the lines of $272 per megawatt hour for wind, and I think it was 374 for solar. So, and what would what would that be compared to say a coal plant or yeah, natural so gas? Yeah, so an existing coal plant is thirty four dollars. Uh, we use FERC Form One data, so you, basically the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has a database, and you can you have to do some number crunching, but you can figure out what it costs to run all of the existing coal plants that are operated by investor-owned utilities. So a uh, natural gas plant, depending on the price of natural gas, obviously, but you could be looking at anywhere between. 20 to 40 dollars right probably 28 mm-hmm. is the sweet spot and existing nuclear plants are anywhere between 30 and 40 dollars so mm-hmm. you are paying a lot more for you know electricity that is less reliable do the levelized costs uh, uh, take account of subsidies uh generally they do right so lazard is which the, is another distortion of the exactly. of the cost yep yep so lazard likes to say that they have a level or a subsidized and unsubsidized value, and you know they fudge the numbers. I think even in their their own cost assessments, but we don't need to get into the um, the p's and q's of that. But whenever American Experiment puts out our own, you know, we call it our all-in levelized cost of electricity, uh, we never use the subsidies because you know subsidies don't change the cost of a good or a service. They simply shift who pays for it, right? So um, yeah, I mean they're still part of the cost. Yes, exactly regardless of, of who pays for it. They're, they, they're there. And most important with, with subsidies in this context is that it, they are often used to justify long-term policies, even though, at least theoretically, the subsidies should not be there for the long term. So it's a pure manipulation of numbers um, and creates the incentive to, to, um, to keep them going. So it's just... It's, oh, I hate, subsidies are my least favorite thing in the world, honestly. I hate them with... Every, every ounce of hate I have, I like to uh, aim on subsidies. <laughs> but that's just my thought on it. Um, Isaac, one thing I want to compliment you on. I, would, I could compliment you on a million things, but one thing is your explanation of capacity factor. That is something that I've struggled with and I've heard many of energy persons struggle with over the years. And your, use, your, your usage of the um, one in a hundred or you know, using a hundred uh, as, as your point of reference – was perfect. Thank you so much for giving me that in addition to all the other information. It was really outstanding. Hey, happy to help. <laughs> so anyway, um, we're going to leave it at that. 
Unless, Lauren, you have any, do you have any final questions? I thought that or conversation. Scathing rebuttal. Or scathing rebuttal. <laughs> I thought that conversation was electric. <laughs> and that's why she gets paid the big bucks right there, everyone. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And I'll remind you again, email me at thepowerhouratheritage.org. That's thepowerhouratheritage.org. I'm lonely. I need friends. Let me know what you think. Good or bad, I can take it. Now, before we end, Isaac, is there anything else you'd like to add? What you have coming up? Also, where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be in Ohio next week uh, talking on a panel to public utility commissioners in Ohio and Pennsylvania. So that should be fun. Uh, you can find our work at AmericanExperiment.org, and my colleague Mitch Rowling and I also have a substack called Energy Bad Boys. You can check that out, and you'll get a uh, an article we've written once a week in your email. So, yeah, that's that's the that's the spot. Energy Bad Boys, I love it. Great name. <laughs> now, Lauren, any final work? Oh, go ahead. Uh, we just like the fight. You know, we like to think of ourselves as like the goons in hockey, where it's just uh-huh. like. You have all these really bad liberal arguments, and we just check them to the boards. It's so fun. I that's what makes public policy fun. In fact, I'm, I know I keep trying to close. I got to bring. I, I need to just say one last thing. I mentioned earlier that nuclear is my thing, and I've I started this as a joke, but I'm dead serious. Because so many people like nuclear now, it's not nearly as fun as it used to be. I like I liked it when people were anti-nuclear, and I really I'm trying. I'm, I am um, lobbying heritage. To make me the coal guy. I want to be the coal analyst. <laughs> that would be so much fun in today's world. So anyway, we'll see We'll see how that goes. So are you on Twitter, social media, or anything like that? Oh, yeah, I am on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the fracking guy. All right, there you go. So Ohio, what was the substack again? I already forgot. Bad Energy Bad Boys <laughs> and the fracking guy. Now, Lauren, any final words from you? I don't know what my favorite visual of this episode was, whether it's Isaac just, you know, with a hockey stick actually pelting the liberals <laughs> or the filthy hip- hippies on the pool twice. You can combine them. Isaac beating <laughs> filthy hippies with his hockey Love stick. Love it. So there you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhouratheritage.org. Thank you, Lauren. And Isaac Orr, thank you for being a guest. And most importantly... Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.